Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War I. The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916 to the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails, Remastered. This is the second part of When Diplomacy Fails' remastered look at the War of the Polish Succession, which originally aired as one episode on the 18th of July 2012. When Diplomacy Fails is five years old, as you know, and all of this stuff has taken a while to do, so if you're feeling generous, if you're feeling in the mood to support this podcast, going forward and maybe inspire future projects like this guy's, then I'd really, really appreciate it. At the time that this is being recorded, I'm not even using the heating because I'm trying to save money. That's not because I don't have the money to pay for it, I'm just quite stingy and wearing loads of layers. That's the way I work, guys. (laughs) I don't even know why I brought that up, but there you go. Thanks very much for listening to this episode, because it really, really makes me happy to see When Diplomacy Fails Remastered reach such glorious heights. It's done even better than I imagined it would, guys, and I have all of you to thank for it. Remember, go to wdfpodcast.com if you want to support what we're doing here. Other than that, let's get to part two of the War of the Polish Succession. Welcome back to When Diplomacy Fails Remastered and our take on the War of the Polish Succession, part two. Last time we guided you guys through the complexities of Europe as... Britain, France, Austria, Spain, Russia, 
and Prussia all seem to have some kind of stake in the race. The issue of Poland and its succession, once Augustus died, seemed to occupy the attention of the French king Louis XV, but only for the time it took for an invasion of Italy to seem like a better idea. In the meantime, as we saw, Stanislaus Lodzinski, as Louis' father-in-law, had been elected king of Poland on the understanding that French aid would be forthcoming, but he would soon have to accept the tragic reality. Poland's days of fighting for itself had come to an end, and every one of Poland's neighbours were determined to make their presence felt. I will now take you to early November 1733, where news of the Franco-Spanish declaration of war on Austria rang out, and Bourbon armies marched, not for Poland as the name of the war might suggest, but the Italian border. I do believe, indeed, that it is more laudable to suffer great misfortunes than to do great things. Stanislaus Lajinski When we last saw them, a Franco-Savoyard army, 50,000 strong, was in the process of invading Milanese lands with the intention of parceling the Italian peninsula up between the Bourbon and Savoy parties. In spite of its name, the War of the Polish Succession, as we gathered last time, had all but abandoned its Polish element once Louis XV of France decided he preferred Italian intrigues instead, which was a shame for Stan, his father-in-law, that he had promised the Polish throne too. But Louis managed to avoid the disapproving looks of his wife and Stan's daughter, and focused his attention away from Eastern Europe and back to his Italian pet project. The Franco-Savoyard army forces met great successes in northern Italy, though considering their Austrian counterparts contained an army 12,000 strong against their 50,000, this is hardly surprising. On the 4th of November, the first great victory of the Bourbon forces occurred when they received the surrender from the city of Milan. While an impressive victory, the campaign into Italy also signified something which was by now especially clear to Stan. Louis cared more for enhancing Bourbon influence in Italy on his doorstep than supporting his father-in-law's moves in Poland, which was some distance away. Stan was right, because although the war of the Polish succession sounds like the war which would see Poland host the majority of the fighting, from this point onwards, pretty much no more fighting exists in Poland, and once Stan is evicted, as we'll see, it all kind of goes back to Italy. But the French made other moves against the Holy Roman Empire in the Rhineland too, On the 14th of October, 1733, French armies invaded the Duchy of Lorraine and began to besiege Kell on the Upper Rhine near the end of October, capturing it soon after. This was but one of the many chapters involved in the long-running Franco-German dispute over the nationality of Lorraine. In this case, though, French force proved superior to what little resistance the Austrians could muster, and this French success piled yet more pressure on the Holy Roman Emperor Charles VI, who was desperately waiting for a reply from Britain after Austria had been attacked. Charles likely hoped to see a British expeditionary force land in Europe, a la the war of the Spanish succession, and drive attention away from his lands, or perhaps for a naval campaign involving some British and Dutch fleets to hamper French coordination. But Charles received neither. The British, Dutch, Swedish and Danes were all of the opinion that Austria had started the war by moving on Poland, and British politicians, chief among them the British Prime Minister Walpole, 
argued that since the Treaty of Vienna was merely a defensive pact, Britain was actually under no obligation to act in Europe. Charles despaired of this decision, but it still seemed highly likely that Britain would enter into the war sometime down the line. The French gains at the expense of Germany would have concerned the British who were protecting Hanover. In addition to this, a vast number of Austrophiles in the British government and in Parliament voiced their anger at the weakness of the British decision in choosing neutrality, arguing that abandoning Austria in its time of need would come back to haunt Britain next time she needed help, provided there was a next time and Vienna wasn't overrun altogether. But as you remember from the last episode, Louis had been advised to be careful and he was well determined to. The last thing he wanted or needed was to give the British an excuse to join Austria, and instead of pushing deeper into German lands, he endeavoured to withdraw back across the Rhine for the winter of 1733 and consolidate his gains in Lorraine. This cautious way of waging war was a double-edged sword for Louis. While he did need Britain to stay out of the conflict, this strategy of not completely defeating the imperial armies would come back to haunt him. Charles had mobilised the forces of the various states, you see, that were still under imperial control over the winter, so by the new year of 1734, he was far more ready to wage war against Louis than he had been. Having said that, though, Louis's forces still enjoyed great success along the Rhine in 1734. They would capture the fortress of Philipsburg on the 18th of July, 1734. It had come at a cost, however as James Fitzjames, also known as the Great Pretender to the British throne, was killed on the 12th of June in the course of that siege by a lucky cannonball shot, or unlucky, I suppose, in his case. Meanwhile, in Poland, Stan had retreated to Danzig, or Gdansk, at the end of September 1733, and by the 6th of October, he saw to his disappointment that Augustus III, the son of Augustus the Strong, had been crowned king, and that thus... Stan had been formally deposed by the Polish same. Stan may have wondered at what might have been, but he soon discovered that a Russo-Saxon army was on its way to besiege Danzig. Danzig itself would hold out until June 1734, but Stan escaped before he could be captured and fled to Konigsberg in Prussia that year. This marked the effective end of military campaigning in Poland, except for when a few of Stan's mates got around and decided to fight the Russo-Saxon forces within their territory and formed the Confederation of Zakov in late 1734. But such forces, in a sense they could be called guerrilla tactics, were defeated by superior numbers, and Stan acknowledged defeat. He signed his second abdication of the Polish throne on the 26th of January 1736 and went back into France. I'll talk a bit more about Stan later, but this is effectively where our friend Stan fades into history. He'll be handed the Duchy of Lorraine as compensation for his efforts by France at the end of the war, but he would die on the 13th of February 1766 at the ripe old age of 88. So with the security of Poland certain, the Polish same called to officially nominate Augustus III as the King of Poland, and the forces who fought in that theatre, this bit is quite important, went west to support a beleaguered Austrian defence. As we gathered from the last episode, these were dark times for Polish nationalism, and one should remember that their newly elected king, Augustus III, was no more interested in his adopted home sovereignty than his father had been. Strange as this may sound, Augustus II had been willing to trade parts of Poland away to other powers 
in exchange for the international recognition of his son as heir to the Polish throne. This leads us to a critical point that Stan may have been the only real Pole whose nationality and loyalties were not in doubt. Since he had no other countries that he originally resided in or came from, he was a true Pole at heart, and this explains why he was able to command such a following in the form of the Confederation of Zakov, despite the relative hopelessness of the Polish cause without French aid, and despite the opposition of the, well, mainly Russian-controlled Polish same. It also explains why Prussia, Austria, and especially Russia, did not want Stan to take the Polish throne, since, as a man who held Polish interests at heart, he would have done everything in his power to ensure that Polish sovereignty continued. When I develop an episode, I often label countries as good or bad in my head, and let's be honest, most of us do. We like the idea of there being a good guy and a bad guy in each historical story, and in this case, France is my bad guy for various reasons, but it should be remembered that they were supporting a good guy in Stan. It is very difficult to imagine just how complicated, defunct, and corrupt the Polish system of government had become, but... Perhaps if I paint this picture for you, you'll be able to see where I'm coming from. Poland basically consisted of many powerful families that formed the backbone of the Polish aristocracy and nobility. These families, though, instead of investing their own resources, which collectively would have been impressive, in Polish affairs, decided instead to seek their fame, fortune, power and glory abroad, especially in Russia. This eagerness for approval from Poland's neighbours which emanated out of some of Poland's most powerful families, manifested itself in almost complete cooperation from them with foreign powers. Polish nobility believed that there was more to be made in surrendering their sovereignty to Russia, for example, rather than expending resources to make their home state great once again. It was for this reason that Stan would have found it so hard to get support among Poland's influentials since because the movers and shakers in Poland believed that future chances for wealth, prosperity and power lay in the hands of the rising Russia, Stan was seen as the problem which would end the good thing that the rich and powerful in Poland had going. Well, that's my own take on it anyway, and I don't want to blacklist the names of all the Polish nobility back then, but I will observe a dangerously high smug level, as historian H. Morris Stevens agrees with me when he points out Although Augustus had been proclaimed king, affairs in Poland showed no signs of improvement. Almost the whole country was in favour of Stanislaus Lijinsky, but the Russians were invading the country and the aristocracy were only interested in preserving the status quo, so the commoners were ignored. So Stan was the far more popular candidate and his election was only opposed because rich people in power didn't want him to mess up what they had. Additionally, Augustus was only elected because Empress Anna of Austria thought it vital to have a subservient monarch at Poland's helm. But who exactly was this Augustus III that I keep talking about? Well, you'll remember that I said he was the son of Augustus the Strong, and this meant, like his father, his full title would have been Elector of Saxony, King of Poland, and Grand Duke of Lithuania. But was he really up to the task of ruling Poland-Lithuania? Empress Anna of Austria certainly hoped that he would be malleable and easy to control. She wanted Poland to exist as a buffer state in between the other nations of Europe, but she also wanted Poland to remain subservient to Russia in the form of a vassal. On the subject of Augustus III's character, I was able to find for you the opinion of the late historian Dr. Nisbet Bain, assistant librarian at the British Museum, and he said, 
The new king was, in every respect, the antithesis of his alert, jovial and dissolute father. His character has been admirably symbolised in the famous picture which represents the portly prince, enveloped in a luxurious dressing gown, reclining in an easy chair and holding in his lap a teacup and saucer. Pious, specific and thoroughly domesticated, nothing but his one passion, a love of the chase, was ever able to tear him from the seclusion of his family circle, while a constitutional sluggishness compelled him to leave everything in the nature of business to ministers who virtually ruled in his name. So yeah, he wasn't all that great, it turns out. And this is why it's important to look at the whole story. Because we think of Louis XV as a warmonger and a tyrant who wanted to parcel up Italy with his friends, I discounted Stan almost immediately in the past, since I thought that Louis was basically trying to put a carbon copy of himself on the throne of Poland. Added to this impression I had was the fact that, during the Great Northern War, Stanislaus Leginski had basically been a puppet of the Swedish king, Charles XII, so so five years ago I didn't have very high opinions of Stanislaus Leginski or his character. But Stan was in fact a good man, and perhaps in another time when his small but proud country had not been the tool of those surrounding it, he would have made a good king. The character of Stan is a good example of a good man that history hasn't been especially kind to, associated as he was with the failed policies of Charles XII of Sweden and Louis XV of France, and sandwiched between those policies of self-interest as a result. But sometimes one has to peel back the layers of bad press to find the true story, and that's what I did here five years ago. And I am genuinely happy that I did it, since Stans is a story that I feel deserves to be told, and actually gives a good account of Polish nationalism and, well, hope for the future, really, but let's get back to the fighting. In Italy, the campaign was not going well for Vienna. While Louis had practically counted out Poland as a major theatre of the war by the end of 1733, by February of 34, French, Savoyard and Spanish forces had achieved many victories in Italy with the capture of Milan, most of Mantua, and great inroads had also been made into Tuscany, Naples and Sicily. It seemed as though nothing could prevent the Bourbon quest of the Italian peninsula. The Austrians were not taking it lying down, putting up resistance wherever possible, but they just didn't seem to have the manpower resources to oppose the Bourbon Savoyard advance. The Austri- Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Greens would have to send a proper, fully-equipped army to combat the force commanded by Villars and Charles Emmanuel before any real challenge to the Bourbons could materialise. Before, Vienna had just put small armies in front of the invaders to kind of slow them down, but... Now that the Polish business was pretty much wrapped up in their favour, Charles VI believed that it was time to send an army to German-controlled Italy. And yet, still, the fortunes of war remained with the Bourbons. However, it was not all good news for the Bourbons. The junior partner of this three-way alliance, Savoy slash Sardinia, had become very wary of French moves and the primary commander of the Savoyard forces, who himself was Charles Emmanuel III of Savoy, did not agree with or trust the nature of French aims, despite the signing of the Treaty of Turin in September 1733 that had guaranteed Milan to Emmanuel, and yeah, sounds like a pretty sweet deal. Marshal Villars would be the victim of Emmanuel's lack of trust, as Emmanuel preferred to use delaying tactics rather than pursue the Austrian forces, And this meant that many a potential decisive victory instead became a minor victory, which outraged Villars, now 81 years old and probably low in patience himself. Though his mind didn't seem to have suffered from his old age, his body was weak, and Villars eventually decided he'd had enough, and he retired in frustration, mainly in protest of Emmanuel's handling of the campaign in northern Italy, on the 27th of May, 1734, after the Bourbon armies failed to prevent the Austrians retreating over the Po River. Emmanuel claimed that he needed to secure the forts around Milan before the Bourbon forces could move freely, but this was where Villars disagreed. He argued for sharp, sharp moves deep into enemy lands, while imperial forces were so clearly on the defensive. Emmanuel's decision not to press the attack probably prevented the immediate destruction of the German armies, but the subsequent death of Villars in June of 1734, only shortly after he'd resigned in protest, was a major blow to the morale of French troops in particular. Villars had been regarded as the best the French had to offer, and now that he was gone, it seemed like much of the soul had been lost from the French army. Good as he had been, though, his death did not immediately change the situation for the Austrians, who remained on the defensive for the rest of 1734 in Italy. The Spanish were, during the summer of that year, closing in on Naples, and the Bourbon forces defeated the German armies in the fiercely contested Battle of San Pietro. So bloody was the battle that the commander of the Austrian forces was killed in that, and his second-in-command was badly wounded. Command of Austrian armies in Italy then passed to Field Marshal Dominic von Koenigsegg, and he set about reinforcing his line along the Po River and awaiting reinforcements. When he felt he had the sufficient forces, he attacked on the 19th of September 1734, and the Battle of Guastalla began. Three days before, Koenigsegg had surprised the Franco-Savoyard forces across the Po River and executed a small raid on Emmanuel's headquarters. Emmanuel escaped, but his prize China did not, and the capture of this was used to boost morale in the Austrian camp before the Battle of Guastalla took place. Despite this action, though, and the fact that they were sipping tea from Emmanuel's prize China, 
Koenigsegg's forces still could not expel the entrenched French and Savoyard forces, and the battle was a hard-fought loss for him. But Emmanuel still did not press the advantage, worried as he was about his own supply lines and the security of Milan, should his forces fall into a trap. This, in turn, enabled Koenigsegg to make up for lost ground by advancing west along the Po River, while Emmanuel's forces were in their winter barracks in Cremona. In southern Italy, the Austrians were faring no better. Spanish forces had taken it upon themselves to go directly for Naples, as the view held that it was a city ripe for the taking. Their efforts were helped by a frankly stupid Austrian policy of trying to hold as many forts as possible rather than retreating to the safest, strongest one with all their forces. Since they were so spread out, Spanish armies were able to easily divide and conquer each one at will, gradually wearing down Austrian strength in the bottom of the peninsula in the process. In Naples, Spanish sympathisers were sending messages to Madrid asking to be relieved of their German masters, and such a prospect excited Queen Elizabeth of Spain. William Cox, in his book Memoirs of the Kings of Spain of the House of Bourbon, notes how Naples was such an important entity to Spain when he wrote, Naples was an object so tempting and apparently so easy in attainment, it outweighed the general interests of the alliance in which Spain formed a part. Naples, in other words, became something of a distraction to Spain, who practically abandoned their French and Savoyard allies in favour of an easy gain in that city. This would probably have ruined the agreement between the three had the campaign as a whole not been going so smoothly. Overall, it seemed like it didn't matter how well or badly the three allies got along or what they did, since it didn't take much, it seemed, to break the flaky Austrian defence. The Kingdom of Naples at this time encompassed around half of Italy, from the bottom of the boot to a halfway divide roughly parallel to the Papal States in Rome. So as far as prizes go, you can see that it was a big one, and remember how badly Queen Liz wanted her sons to rule Italy? Well, Naples was a pretty good way to achieve this, so her son, Don Carlos, moved with frightening speed to nullify opposition to the takeover, and this was completed with relative ease by May 1734. In that month, he marched into the city and was welcomed by the city fathers as the Austrian viceroy had long since fled to Vienna. Once the area around Naples had been secured, Spanish forces then moved quickly to remove the rest of Austrian forces from the entire kingdom. This was achieved in the successive Spanish victories in the sieges of Gaeta and Capua in August and November 1734, respectively. The Spanish victory was total. By the end of 1734, the bottom half of Italy was devoid of Austrian influence, and Spain would keep it that way for the next 80 years. So the Austrian situation in late 1734 was very bad, since all they'd really done was lose half of Italy to Spain and Milan and Mantua to France, with a good few wild cards still in play. What Charles VI needed was a decisive victory. However, he needed one fast. Peace feelers had been sent out to all those involved since the war started, and now that France and Spain had gotten what they'd come for, it seemed only a matter of time before peace was achieved, and terms were forced on the Holy Roman Empire that would make the recent conquests permanent. So Charles ordered a military plan to be drawn up for 1735 in order to inflict a heavy defeat on the French and Spanish and perhaps make the peace terms more lenient. But luck still was not going his way. French troops on the Rhineland breezed past the German lines, reaching as far as the city of Mainz before considerable resistance was encountered. Charles was beside himself. What was happening to his armies? 
Soon the Spanish would come marching up from Italy and hit him in the south, so he had to defeat the French and send them back across the Rhine before that happened. He knew Austria's survival depended on it. While French forces were preparing to besiege the city of Mainz, Charles's luck finally changed. Austria's saviour was a career diplomat and soldier by the name of Friedrich Heinrich Reichsgraf von Seckendorf. Since his early days as a soldier in William of Orange's army during the late 17th century conflict, the War of the Grand Alliance, also known as the War of the League of Augsburg, Seckendorf had gone on to serve the British, Dutch, Venetian, Polish and Austrian courts, rising to the rank of Field Marshal in the process and solidifying his name as an intelligent soldier and tough negotiator. In this case, Seckendorf led 25,000 Austrian soldiers, most of whom had finally returned from pacifying Poland and were ready to take on the French forces along the Rhine. Seckendorf was also joined by 10,000 Russian soldiers under the command of Count Peter Lacey, the first time Russian soldiers had ever been brought this far west in Europe, at least as far as I know. While the overall command of the Rhine Theatre was in Eugene of Savoy's hands, his subordinates, such as Seckendorf, were given the freedom to act where they saw fit along the front without Eugene's constant accompaniment. Under such conditions, Seckendorf was able to create a defensive line which he hoped would halt the French advance in the theatre. Learning of the Empire troops nearby, the French army under the command of General Francois de Quigny moved to intercept and on the 20th of October 1735, the Battle of Clausen, the last real battle of consequence of the War of the Polish Succession, occurred. The battlefield consisted of a bridge, over a small gully in the centre of a valley. The armies of both sides marched down from the hills on opposite sides of the river Ravenich, and the battlefield basically involved both sides trying to hold the bridge long enough for significant numbers of their forces to cross and attack the enemy. It was a back-and-forth battle, though, as counter-attack met with counter-attack on both sides until, eventually, after rallying his Hungarian and some random Danish cavalry to charge, the French were repulsed for the last time. Seckendorf pursued them, but there would be no post-battle annihilation of the French armies that Charles VI had wanted. General Quigny had made sure of that, as his forces retreated back into Lorraine in good order. Losses were not catastrophic for the French, but... They had lost 1,000 men killed, while the Austrians had lost just 500. But Charles was so desperate for a victory of any kind that he gladly accepted the limited one that Seckendorf handed to him. The Battle of Clausen is important, despite the apparently small consequences of it, because it was the last battle in the War of the Polish Succession before concrete peace negotiations really began. It had been a demoralising and unproductive campaign for Charles VI, and it is widely suspected that the catastrophic losses of the Holy Roman Empire in Italy contributed to his already ill health and eventual death in 1740. Peace was sought after by practically all sides in 1735. In France, the fear was that Britain would intervene if the conflict went on for too long against a clearly disadvantaged Austria, while in Vienna, the clear need for peace centred around the loss of so much in such a short space of time and the clear need to rebuild and prepare to gain it back in future. Peace was mediated by the British and Dutch soon after the Battle of Clausen took place at the end of October 1735, though it would not be officially ratified until November 1738, which is why we set that as the official end date for the war, even though nothing much happened in between. During this time, a popular term in the peace settlement, which began floating around, 
was the agreement of the various parties to respect the Pragmatic Sanction of 1713. This was a treaty held up by Charles VI of the Holy Roman Empire, which declared his intention to hand his throne to his daughter, Maria Theresa, when he died. The idea of a woman inheriting the Holy Throne was considered ridiculous in 18th century German ideology though, and across most of Europe as well, so Charles spent the years since 1713 persuading the other German states to agree to the handing of power to his daughter when he eventually died, instead of fighting over his crown and usurping her authority, as the norm seemed to be with all these wars of succession going on. Europe, Charles VI believed, had surely had enough of wars of succession by now. The vast majority of German states agreed to respect the pragmatic sanction in the Treaty of Vienna of 1738, which on a side note was the last international treaty signed exclusively in Latin, and this gave Charles peace of mind that, should he die in the near future, Europe would not be plunged into a war for the tenth time in the 18th century. France, Spain, Sweden, Russia, Prussia, Britain, the Netherlands, Savoy, and many minor German states all agreed to honour Charles's soon-to-be dying wish. But it was all a show, because as soon as Charles VI died two years later, Prussia would open the next chapter of European warfare when its king, Frederick the Great, invaded Silesia. When Frederick's armies marched, those higher up in the German states put forward their own claims to the Habsburg throne. Maria Theresa, perceived as a weak ruler purely because she was a woman, would be a chief witness to the Third European War over the issue of succession in less than 40 years. The War of the Polish Succession then, while not inconsiderable in its impact, proved to be just another cog in the machine of constant warfare that the nations of Europe in the 18th century seemed only too happy to throw themselves into yet again. The peace forged at Vienna in 1738 lasted barely two years before another war, and this one would be eight years long. The War of the Austrian Succession occurred around Europe and the world, but the War of the Polish Succession was the last time Poland would really be considered an entity of any consequence again. If it hadn't been clear before that Poland was tied to Russia, then it was crystal clear now. Poland, Lithuania as a sovereign state was extinct once Louis failed to support the one candidate that the Poles really cared for, and by that I mean the Polish people really cared for, rather than the nobility or aristocracy, and of course I'm talking about Stan. To compensate him, perhaps out of guilt for pretty much abandoning him, we don't really know what Stan thought of Louis's actions in this case, but we can be sure that Stan's daughter and Louis XV's wife would have stared daggers at Louis during the period. Louis gave Lorraine to Stan for the remainder of his life, which lasted until 1766. Stanislaus Lijinski is just one of the many characters involved in the tragic story of Poland, which now had a half-century of subservience to Russia and a century of not existing at all to look forward to. The Polish story is also one of what might have been, since although we know now that it was dissolved as a state between its neighbours in the Third Polish Partition of 1795, history may have travelled along a different route had Louis been true to his word and stuck by Stan. But I digress. If the War of the Polish Succession demonstrated to Europe that Poland was approaching its end as a sovereign state, then it also reaffirmed the importance of Russia. Russia was now an entity in Europe, whereas before the Western Europeans had never considered Russia a true power, 
Now it became clear that, with Russian influence being what it was in the Baltic, in Eastern Europe, Eurasia, and beyond, and with capabilities that enabled it to send a contingent across the Rhine, Europe could no longer discount it as irrelevant anymore. Indeed, the war at the Polish succession seems like the war which encouraged Russia to join in the fun with the rest of Europe, since the majority of future wars on the continent all involve Russia in some shape or form. This war was an eye-opener then for that reason, but also for another. You see, Spain had long been regarded as a nation past its prime. While Spain was certainly not the globe-owning power that it once was, it had proven with its victories in Italy that it was not the weak, pathetic tool of France that many in Europe had tended to regard it as either. Spanish success in Italy proved that its armies could still pack a punch if properly led, and this meant that its frequent alliances with France became an even more threatening prospect to Britain and her allies in the future. Okay, on that note, I shall take my leave. Yes, in retrospect, it would have been a really good idea to have done these in order and to have found a way to do the War of the Austrian Succession next, but hey, I had the rest of my life to cover that war and I'm fairly positive that by the time we do reach it, we'll be ready for it. And if you're curious about what is to come next in this remastered special, let's just say it's been a long time coming that I gave a certain event in history its proper due attention. Anyway, my name is Zach, you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. Thanks, and I'll see you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.